We are going to be in Acts chapter 9. You can turn there. While you're turning, I'll ask you this question. If you're to make a list of the most important people in history, who makes your list? You can always hear this, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus would be on a good, a good one on that list, right? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Napoleon, Charlemagne, Martin Luther, Charity Heverly. It's my list, I gotta make it whoever I want. If you Google most important people in history, top five, top 10, will be a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. He is considered by most to be extremely influential in history. He authors a bestseller. So the book you're holding right now is a historic bestseller, the best-selling book in history. Of the 27 New Testament books, Paul authors... 13 at least, maybe 14 in the book of Hebrews. On top of that, his physician, Dr. Luke, authors Acts and Luke, which obviously he had some influence on that. And just in terms of the number of words, Luke writes more of the New Testament than anyone else. So you add that up and this book that we hold that a lot of people have read and has influenced a lot, he's a major contributor to it. Even more than that, though, it's Paul. He's the one that takes Christianity from being a little sect of Judaism, because that's all it was at this point in Acts chapter 8. Maybe 20,000 believers. It's a little sect of Judaism. And he's the one that explodes it so it becomes an empire changer. Here's what I mean. Rome in the early parts of the first century was really bad. It wasn't like it was 200 years before with Cato and like the Senate and all these great things. It had, once it gained power, it became very corrupt and gross, sexually just gross. You can read about it if you want to, it's not pleasant. But even more than that, like life became unimportant to Rome. So there's a letter we have from a businessman from the first century in Rome. He writes back to his wife. And it's like the, the normal stuff you might write. Hey, man, weather down here has been great. You know, I know it's raining up there, but it's sunny here. Uh, the business is good. This is what's happening. And then as a byline, he writes this. Oh, by the way, if the child that you give birth to is a girl, put it out in the field to die. Oh, and then I'm going to be home this day. It's just nonchalant. Like that's just what happened in Rome by the first century. Didn't care about life. If you don't want the child, just leave it out in the field, let it, let it die. But even more than that, like the Circus Maximus, if you've ever heard of that, Circus, that word comes from them. It was this place in the city of Rome that was brutal. It was blood sport. So they would take slaves, we call them gladiators today, that were normally friends or working together. They would put them together, give them all kinds of weapons and say, hey, kill each other. The last man standing wins. And if they didn't do it, they'd just kill them anyways. They would defeat countries. 
And a Roman general would be given a triumph, which meant this. He got to go straight down the main cardo of Rome and it ended at Circus Maximus. And he would take these slaves that he had captured and he would put them into the circus and then they would release these starving lions that would come out and just rip them limb from limb. Brutal empire. Rome. By 300, 325 AD, somewhere in there, Rome is transformed. They say, historians say, that 50% of Rome believes in Jesus, the Roman Empire. And it changes the very trajectory of this corrupt, corroded empire and makes it very different. It's the bedrock for Europe. It's the Roman Empire. It's the launch of America. And it all tracks back this guy named the Apostle Paul who takes the glorious good news of Jesus Christ and expands it out to Europe and to the Gentiles. Brilliant, very, very influential man. But if you had lived in Acts chapter eight, you would say, Saul, later becomes Paul, Saul will never be saved. He's the Charles Manson of his time. He's the Richard Dawkins, intellectual, smart. He's never gonna believe. He's the last person you would ever expect to believe in Jesus Christ. So how does Saul the slayer get transformed into the apostle Paul the preacher? What changes him? Because I think you can learn from Paul and the same thing that changed Saul to Paul can work for you and me today. There might be things in you that are like, I'm Saul-like there. And I wish I wasn't Saul-like there. How do I become something different? Well, the key, I think, is look and see what happened to this guy named Saul who becomes Paul, all right? So we're gonna look at this. But first, before we look at what he becomes and how he changes, I gotta show you what he was. So look at chapter eight, verse one. And Saul approved of his execution. This is chapter seven, the church's first martyr, a guy named Stephen, who preaches such a brilliant message. No one can answer it. So instead of trying to answer it, they kill him. Saul approved or cast his vote for him to die. So he is probably on the council that makes the decision to kill Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off women and men and committed them to prison. So he is knocking on doors. If he finds somebody that's a Christian, man or woman or child, he handcuffs them, binds them, and puts them in prison. Then chapter nine, verse one. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder. When he threatens murder, is he serious? Yeah, he killed somebody or approved of the execution of Stephen in chapter seven. Threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest 
and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So now he is dog the bounty hunter, right? He's got a little piece of paper that says, you can go over there and hunt people. He franchises out of Jerusalem. He kind of did all he could do in Jerusalem. He goes 150 miles north to the next biggest city and says, I'm gonna go up there and do the same thing, right? So he walks 150 miles to go get those people. That's hatred, isn't it? This guy hated Jesus and hated Christianity. Have you ever thought of the emotion of hatred? Like it's a strange emotion. Science says that animals don't experience hatred. Humans are the only creature that hates. I don't know if I believe them. I had a dog growing up. <laughs> His name was Ripley. He hated the postman. Like, I don't know why dogs hate postmen. He hated the postman. The postman would come like at, I don't know, one o'clock. And about a half an hour before the postman would come, Ripley would get off our porch, go out to the front fence and just stand there and look. And then about 15 minutes before the postman would come, the hair on his neck would start to go up. And then about 10 minutes before, he'd just start growling. Like we knew, he loved us and we loved him. I knew better, just don't touch him. Like right now he's, we call it PMS. Postman malice syndrome. Just, just lay off. Let him have his half an hour, he'll be back to normal. So I don't know if we're the only ones, but I know we do experience hatred. And it's a weird emotion. Like it, you can feel when you hate somebody, there's like this release of that fight or flight kind of adrenaline and chemicals and your eyebrows get all furrowed and, and your mouth kind of clenches and, and you know it's destructive, but it's also addictive, isn't it? When you start hating something, does it grow stronger or weaker? It goes stronger and stronger. You get madder and madder. And that's what was happening to Saul. Why? Why did he hate Jesus? And why did he hate believers so much? You can look at his testimony. It's given a number of times at the end of the book of Acts. And in Acts 26, Jesus speaks to him and Jesus says this to him. Paul, Saul, I should say, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was something that you would, as a sharp, pokey stick, that if you wanted to move a horse or a cow or a donkey or a goat or a sheep, you could poke them in the back leg and it, it would get them moving. And sometimes you would poke a cow, I guess, with a goad and it would kick at you. Well, if you kick at a sharp stick, what happens to you? It pokes you even worse. So there was something that was poking and sticking Saul really bad and leading him to this anger and hatred. What was that? I believe it's the message that Stephen preaches in chapter seven. Luke records it's the longest sermon in the entire book of Acts. Luke was not there when it was preached. Who was the one guy Luke knew that was there listening to Stephen preach? Saul or Paul, he's the only one. Saul had that message. 
so deeply written into his heart that he's able to recount it to Luke. This is what Stephen said. It was so powerful. I had no answer for it. And it made me so mad. No, I hated it because it was right. Ever wonder why people hate Christianity so much? Could it be that it's actually poking them? And they're like, man, it's so right. And I hate that it's right. Maybe you're here today and you don't like Christianity. Maybe you got tricked into coming. Your mom, your dad, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your wife, like, let's take a Sunday drive. And you ended up here, you're like, what? You're welcome, glad you're here. Maybe something's poking you and you should pay attention to it. What's it prodding you toward? I think that's what was leading Saul's hatred. Ah, I hate that this thing's right. I just wanna stamp it out. Just like they did to Stephen. I hate that he's right, let's kill him. A lot of people do this, right? So what changes him? What changes him from this hater of Jesus and Christianity to the guy that expands it into the known world? Number one, notice what happens to him. It's verse three. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Number one, number one, he saw the light. He has believed now for all of his life. He probably has heard about Jesus for quite a while now. He has believed for all of his life that Jesus is wrong and Christianity is a heretical sect. And then as he's walking to Damascus, all of a sudden, a light comes on and his hatred and his killing of Christians, he realizes all at once, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Ever believe something you thought was right? And then later on, you discover you were wrong. So on Good Friday, I went through this list. I asked questions like, true or false? True or false? I'll ask you one of them or maybe two. Is it true that we only use 10% of our brains? Some people only use 10% of their brains. You can read about them in the Daily Courier. It's awesome. It's really good stories of them. No, it's not true at all. But somehow we have this idea that like there's this untapped 90%. If you could only unleash it, you would be whoever. No, like usually there's 10% lit up, but it's just different regions. That's why they do scans on your brain to see what lights up. No, did you, here's another one. Don't drink milk when you have a cold because it increases mucus, true or false? False. Enjoy a good glass of homogenized vitamin D milk when you have a cold. It will not hurt you. There's a whole bunch of them. There's like 30 on this list. I couldn't believe it because most of them I assumed were true and they were false. So Paul here has been living his life a certain way. The light comes on. He's like, I've been wrong this whole time. I've been wrong. The good news, the power of God shines into his heart and reveals he's wrong. That's how this change begins. Well, Matt, how's that happen for me? I'd love to be walking along the road and have like light from heaven shine on me and Jesus tell me what to do. That'd be awesome. How's this work for me? Here's, I think, what believers should make a habit of. It's praying Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And that psalmist says this, search my heart. 
See if there be any wicked way in me. Is there some darkness? Is there something that I am doing incorrectly? Because Proverbs says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is destruction. Saul thought he was right. He thought he was on the wrong or the right absolute road. And then all of a sudden he discovers, I was 100% wrong. Search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the path everlasting. That's a prayer I think believers should be praying all the time. Is there something in me that's amiss? Expose it to the light. Change me so that I'm right instead of wrong. So number one, he saw the light. Number two, he began to think about what's right. So Wednesday, we'll try to cover more of this, but if you just skip down to verse nine, he's blinded and it says this, verse nine, for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul is an extremely educated man. He has a PhD in theology. He has memorized the first five books of the Bible. He is top guy. He went to MIT, whatever it is, Stanford, MIT. He's the top dude, intelligent. For three days, he does not eat. And he doesn't drink. He just sits and thinks about what had happened to him. Man, I thought this was the way things were, but I was wrong. I have to rethink everything. And he thinks so well, if you skip down to verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. To prove something means you have evidence. So Paul now has rethought everything that he had believed in a new paradigm because he saw the light and he begins to reason out this is, this is proof for Jesus. I think there is a error that has happened inside church. And this is this idea that you need to check your brain if you're gonna be a believer. That you just have to believe. Yeah, that's true. But if Paul wrote Hebrews, Hebrews 11.3, he says this. He says there that by faith, we understand. That word understand could be think, reason. He says, my faith led me to reason and to think deeply. I love that. I love that. I think as believers, we should be the most thoughtful people ever. Christianity is the one that says, think Think, think, think. Cults say this. Here's what a cult says to you. Here's how you know you're in a cult. A cult will say this. Don't think, just obey. Right? Don't think about what I'm giving you to drink. Grape Kool-Aid. Just obey and drink it. Dangerous. Fundamentalism says this. Don't think, just believe. Just believe what we're telling you. Don't think it through. Eastern religions say this, don't think, actually empty your mind. The way that you get to nirvana is just take all the thoughts out of your mind and contemplate your navel or something, right? Americanism says this, don't think, relax. Christianity says, think well. It goes all the way back to what Jesus says is the most important command in the Bible. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. 
It's called the great Shema. It says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He says to you and me, he says, don't worry. Don't be stressed out. Why would Jesus say to you and me, don't worry and don't be stressed out? Because we worry and we stress out. We get A pluses in those things. We really, right? We just bombed Syria. Oh no, World War III, Russia's coming, hide. Buy the Costco survival pack. Don't worry, right? So here's what Jesus says. He doesn't say believe. He doesn't say obey. He doesn't say empty your mind. He says this, consider, what does consider mean? Think, consider the lilies of the field. They don't toil, they don't spit. Have you ever seen a stressed out flower? Right? Have you ever seen one? Is the sun going to come up? Is it going to rain tomorrow? I'm wilting here. I need to pollinate. Get the bees out here. Right? My biological clock is ticking. I've never seen a flower worried. Jesus says, think deeply about how God takes care of his creation. And that will help you to not worry and be stressed out. Right? Think. Think. I believe in Jesus and I believe in God. Yes, there's faith involved, but I also want proof. I want to reason it out. I want to think it out. I think a lot of believers miss out on the transformation that can happen in their lives because they haven't sought and thought about what's actually happened to them and what Jesus means. They haven't thought it out. They haven't said, these are the reasons I believe. What kind of reasons do you have, Matt? Let me give you a few. Number one, the reason why I believe in God is this origins. Here's what I mean. The fact that we have something instead of there being nothing, that's called origins. And there's this idea in origins, it's called the conservation of mass. It is not a hypothesis. It is not a um, uh, uh, theory. Conservation of mass is a law. It's a physical law. It means this, you cannot create and you cannot destroy matter. You can change its properties and make it a little bit different, but you can't create or destroy it. That's called the conservation of mass. So what that means is this. If you have something today, it means you had to have something yesterday. That nothing always creates nothing. Just think about your bank account. (laughs) Right? Well, you can take that line of reasoning, the conservation of mass, back as long as you want. If there's nothing today, or if there's something today, there had to be conservation of something yesterday. You can go back a year, 10 years, 10 billion years, 10 trillion years. I don't care how long. You can go back there, conservation of mass. So philosophers, they're different than physics. They, They talk a lot about beginning stuff. And here's something amazing about philosophy. In about 1970, no philosophers believed in God. Today, there's an overwhelming number of philosophers who believe in God mostly because of this guy named Alvin Plantiga, who's brilliant, but also because of more we'll learn about the origins of the world. And they say this, essentially they say this. Okay, we can take conservation of mass back to the Big Bang. And what they say, a minute before the Big Bang, there had to either be matter, conservation of mass, or a mind that could create matter. Those are your only two options. Matter or a mind that could create matter. But what do we know, according to science, before the Big Bang? What was there? Nothing. 
nothing. So what does that mean before the Big Bang? There had to be a mind. Something had to be eternal. And it's a mind, right? So I follow this a lot. The BBC just this week had this article on there about how we got the universe. And this is, these are PhD physicists. You can Google it, you can find it, it's awesome. Here's what they said. The physicists said this. Well, because there was nothing and there was emptiness, that nothing and emptiness is inherently unstable. So it had to create everything that we have. Done. Woo, right? I mean, I could not believe it because nothingness and emptiness is inherently unstable. It had to create the entire universe that we see today. All right, I'm gonna go back to my job. It's unbelievable. So I thought, okay, let's, let's, just, let, let's test that philosophy for a second. If nothing, emptiness is inherently unstable and has to create, then let, let's just test that. So my bank account, which is at zero, is inherently unstable, totally. So if I wait long enough, there'll be like this bang and I'll have billions. I'm waiting. I want that to happen. I love to eat garden food. I don't like the gardening part so much. So if I just put out empty containers, which are inherently unstable, just boom, all of a sudden I'll have this brilliant garden. Some people's minds are empty. That's inherently unstable. So if they just wait long enough with an empty mind, boom, they're Albert Einstein. It's ridiculous. The more you look at origins, probably the most powerful argument, it's an ontological argument is what it's called. The more you look at origins, the more it says there's a creator. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can argue about how that happened or whatever, but the actual origin of it is super solid. That's what I believe. Morals. So if you and I, if you and I are here as just the next level up from an ape, and we got here by the mechanism, Darwinian mechanism called survival of the fittest, which means this, if you are the strongest, you survive and you devour the weakest. That's survival of the fittest. That the animal kingdom is bloody in tooth and claw. So survival of the fittest means this, that might is always right. If you can do it, do it. There's no, should I do that? ought I to do that? There's none of that in the animal kingdom, right? Animals don't ask that question. Should I do that? The hyena does not look at the cheetah that just ran down uh, antelope, expended all of her energy. The hyena doesn't say, oh, that poor little cheetah. She worked real hard to get that. I know she's got some cubs back in her den. If she doesn't eat that antelope, she won't have the milk to provide for her three cubs and her three cubs will die. You know, I'm just gonna let her have it. Do hyenas do that? No, what do they do? They take it, because might is right. That governs, that governs the animal kingdom, survival of the fittest, okay? But humans aren't that way, are we? We ask the question, should I do that? Not can I do that, should I do that? And I watch this work out at my own house. So, not with my kids. They are a little bit animals at times, but this is actually with animals. For a while, we had a lot more animals. We had two horses, four goats, a bunch of chickens. And I'd take these apples that someone had given us and I'd throw them down in the field. And what I saw was this, I saw the survival of the fittest, might is right. The chickens who were the fastest would get to the apples first. They started eating them. But even in the chickens, there's a pecking order. 
There's always one big, mean hen who just, she just, my food, right? Even the rooster's like, hey, all right, man, you go right ahead, woman, all right? We know people like that. So she starts first and the other ones are trying to get a little bit. Then the goats would come and the goats would just, they would literally just take their heads and smash into chickens, feathers fly, they start eating because mine is right. Then the horses who are a little bit slower, they'd plot over there and they would just move the goats out of the way with their heads and they would eat. Why? Because mine is right. It governs the animal kingdom. Does it govern humans? No. Why do we actually give extra care to weaker people, handicapped people, broken people. Why does a guy on a corner who holds a sign up that says, I'm hungry because he's broken in some way, why does he get lunch? In the animal kingdom, if you're broken in some way, you become lunch. That's opportunity. You're the weakest. Survival of the fittest. Why is that? Why are we so different? Because you and I uniquely Genesis 1 says, we have been stamped with the image of God. And we have in us, given to us, a conscience that says, there's more than just can do it. There's a should you do it, ought you to do it. And yes, it's been hurt. Yes, it gets scarred. Yes, it gets corrupted, no doubt about it. But it's still there in all of us, that image of God, that's more. I can go on and on, purpose. All of us have this innate knowledge that we have purpose in life. Well, according to atheism, we shouldn't. It should be what's called existentialism or the absurdist, absurdness of life. That if one day the universe goes cold, negative 273.15 degrees Celsius, which is gonna happen. The sun will go out, earth will go cold, life will cease. If that's our end, what does it matter what I do today? Does it matter if I was a good person or a bad person? Moral, immoral, does anything matter? Nope, nothing matters. It's called existentialism. If we really believed in existentialism, none of us would get out of bed. We'd all be covered in Dorito chips and beer cans saying, ah, who cares? That's what everyone would live. But nobody lives like that, why? Because we know innately we have purpose. We have purpose. Now, some people get so broke that that begins to get damaged, but the majority of people know well, no, there's purpose. There's more to life than that absurdist. There's more to life than one day going dim. We know that. And G.K. Chesterton actually wrote an article on this. And he says, if there's a key that you find and it fits a lot perfectly, know it was designed. The fact that there is purpose and it fits every human heart, we are designed with that purpose. I can go on and on and on and on. Think, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. Don't miss out on the radical transformation that can happen by thinking, by considering, by reasoning. So Paul here, first he sees the light. Then number two, he just starts to think what is right. And number three, maybe the biggest one. And this is the mark that marks Paul's theology from this day forward. It's his Pauline signature. Notice what Jesus says to Paul because this idea is echoed from here on out. Look at what he says. Verse nine, or excuse me, verse four. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Isn't that strange? Jesus is in heaven, seated in glory, back in control of the universe. And he says to Saul, who's on earth, hurting some Christians, why are you persecuting me? What was Jesus saying right there? I think maybe it's what he says in Matthew 25 to his disciples, where he says, when you visit the sick and people in prison and you clothe people and you feed people in that you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. That there's something, this mystery that when you believe in Jesus, you're unified with him somehow. It's why Paul from this point forward will talk about us being in Christ and Christ being in us. Or he uses these metaphors over and over of the body, the body of Christ. Or the tree, that there's all these metaphors that you've been grafted in. It goes everywhere. And it marks Paul's theology. That something happens when you believe that's a mystery that was solved by Jesus. So let me give you one text on it. It's Colossians. And there's a ton. It is his mark. Colossians 1 verse 26 says this. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The word mystery there is mysterion. It's a Greek word that means something that we had kind of some hints at, but we didn't quite fully understand. We saw glimpses of it, but we didn't make sense of it. That's this word mystery. I'll try to explain it like this. Uh, I was a missionary for a while in Vanuatu and uh, had a great time there with some really cool guys, Dominic Doan, Josh Bossard, Dave Corson. And we would go from time to time and we would go to these villages, they're called custom villages, that were out in the bush and they were leaf roofed and bamboo walled and People would walk around dressed in leaves, you know, that whole thing, right? So you'd be out there, very interesting. Um, and the knee vans, when you visit them, they are hyper hospitable. They would give you the leaf off their body. Not that you'd want it, but they would totally do that. So just great people, awesome people. So they're, they're always cooking. So it'd be a fire with a uh, pot on it. And inside that pot would be some kind of soup. We called it mystery stew. So while you're sitting there, you know you're going to eat it. At some point, they're going to invite you in for dinner and you're going to eat that. So you kind of glance over there and you would see it kind of bubbling. You might see a beak come out or a claw or the bat of a, of a, of a or the wing of a bat because they eat bats over there. So you're kind of looking at it and wondering, oh no, what am I going to eat? Oh no. But it's a mystery. You get glimpses of it. Then it was time to eat. And when it was time to eat, you would go over to that with a big ladle and you would dip it in and you would pour whatever it was into your bowl. And then the mystery was revealed. You knew exactly what you were eating. And in Vanuatu, once you put it in your bowl, it was their custom. You ate it. You had to sit down and eat whatever was in your bowl. So I learned something very quickly. I learned this, to go first. And I would go first. And then I would ladle out some into my bowl. And if it looked like the part of the chicken used to produce eggs, I would then say to Josh or Dom, hey, bro, let me serve you. Here you go, bro. Thank you. (laughs) 
And if on try number two, it looked like something bad again, oh, here, Josh, here you go, bro. And try number three, if it looked good, I'd be like, Dave, you're on your own, bud. Sorry. I am wicked and evil. God, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the way everlasting. Do not go on the mission field with me. I will do it to you. I guarantee it, man. I will figure out a way for you to eat it and me not to. Okay, that's mystery stew. It was the same, that's the idea. We got glimpses of something for ages and generations, but we couldn't quite figure it out. And it was ladled into our bowl when we got it. So Paul's saying, man, I studied the Old Testament and there was these hints of something coming. Moses would say in Deuteronomy 30, your heart is gonna be circumcised. You can't keep all these laws I've written to you. It's a brilliant passage. But your heart will be circumcised so that you will desire, want to keep God's laws. How's that gonna happen, Saul would say. How's that possible? And then Jeremiah the prophet would come and he would say, there's a new covenant coming where my laws will not be written on tablets of stone, but my laws will be written upon the very table of your heart. How? How's God gonna do that? And then Ezekiel would come, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36. And Ezekiel says, God will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in my statutes and my laws and my commands. Bubble, bubble, bubble. And then the mystery gets solved. How? Look at how this continues. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's our hope? What's our hope for Saul-like tendencies in our lives to be changed to Paul? Is it moralism? Is it gut it up and work harder? Is it grit your teeth and do more? Right, that didn't work in the Old Testament. What's our hope? Christ in us. It's a mystery that Paul got on day number one. When you hurt the church, you're hurting me because I'm in them. I've come and I've made my home with them. And it's Christ inside of us that's our hope. The hope for failing marriages is not the next DVD series from whoever the hope for your failing marriage is Christ in you. The hope for a teenager who's strung out on drugs. Yeah, things, education, help, all that kind of stuff. But the true hope for him to be changed and regenerated is Christ in him. The hope for the souls that are around you, maybe a son that's gone sideways or a daughter that's gone sideways or a father or a mother that's gone sideways. You think they'll never get saved. The hope for them, Christ in them. That's the hope. Our hope is built on one thing, nothing else. It's Jesus Christ inside of us, transforming us into his same image. That's our hope. That's what Christianity offers. It changed Saul from hater, persecutor, killer, into one of the most important people in history who's a lover and a preacher and a life changer. It's Christ in him. That's our hope. And I don't know how you came in today. Maybe you've lost hope. Maybe in life. Because at times it can seem absurd. 
Maybe you've lost hope in your marriage. Maybe you've lost hope for your kids. Maybe you've lost hope for our city. Here's what I would suggest. When you come and you eat here at the table, there's a mystery to this. It's just bread. It's just some kind of juice. That's not the mystery. The mystery is what Jesus says, that when you eat of this, you take part in me. 1 Corinthians 11 says, when you eat of this, there's, there's a power to it, negative or positive. When you eat today, maybe you pray that simple little prayer. Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Maybe you already know what it is. And you say, Jesus, I place my hope in you. The hope to stop these Saul-like things and become more like Paul, more like Jesus, event, you know, essentially. The, the, the hope to change is you change me. And then you eat and you drink and you trust that Jesus can change you. That's our hope. That's our hope. So Father, this day, we come to you, the God of all hope. We come to this table to partake in you to be changed by you, to look more like you. You're our hope. Our hope is not in more rules. Our hope is not in another person. Our hope is not in gutting it up. Our hope is in you. That's you in us. That's our hope that anything will be glorified that we'll get back to the image that you have for us. So I ask this day, Lord, as we partake in the bread and the cup, I pray that your power would be released into hearts that are hopeless about their circumstances or about themselves. And that your strength would be our strength and your righteousness would be our righteousness. And your holiness would be our holiness. And your goodness would be our goodness. And we'd walk out of these doors empowered by you to live like you. That you are our hope. And I ask this in your name.